Well, speaking of the prophetic ministry, we're going to go back to Haggai. Yes. 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 Right. Right. Just a lot of fire in them. Absolutely. That's, we will pray for the school. Of, and we're thankful for the school of ministry. Our church here has got, with Randall's leadership, what a great opportunity we have. We are seeing persons who are called into ministry be trained and equipped from this very campus and sent out into their respective fields of influence. And, and it's, a, it's a great honor to be able to do that. And so, because we're getting, I mean, look at the fruit that we're going to be a part of. I mean, Randall more than anything. We'll just get close to Randall, you know, and then you, maybe some fruit will fall off on your life as well. That's what we found out with our apple tree. Yeah, you're fruity. <laughs> yes, that we, we found out with our apple tree last night. Mike and I were, we're, not, we're now apple farmers. We, we inherited two apple trees in our backyard, and so we're looking at them, and they've got apples on there. Mike said, you think we ought to pick an apple and put it in the window, see if it ripens? I said, I don't think that's what you're supposed to do. He said, I said, well, he said, let's pick that big one. I don't know why we chose the biggest one. It's starting to turn a little bit red. I said, I don't think these apples turn red. I don't think they're that variety. So we picked it. I twisted it off. And I said, here, I said, you want to take the first bite? And he said, he said, that's green. He said, that's green. So I took a bite. And he, he, didn't, even, he didn't chew his up. He spit it out. I, I chewed a couple of bites. And I thought, I'm going to get diarrhea. <laughs> so I threw it away. And he said, well, I guess that what you do with apple trees is you just wait for the first one to fall, and that's how you know they're ripe. So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to start following Randall around, and when fruit starts falling off his life, we'll just, we'll just start picking it up, you know. We'll just, be, we'll just be harvesters like that. That's right. So this morning, we're going to go to Haggai. Now, as I'm looking at this more and more, I think about, I think about the prophet Haggai, and his ministry to Israel was in a very precarious time. I'm thankful that God raises up prophets in the day that they are needed, aren't you? Now, I've been, I have been interested in the prophetic ministry the first time in my entire life, and now it's really funny because the prophetic has always kind of been one of those things throughout my church life. It's just kind of, you know, for this, you know, David Wilkerson or this one or that one. But the prophetic ministry, as I begin to look at, I think it's very needed today, don't you? I think the prophetic ministry is something that we have sort of, we have sort of scooted around to the closet and, and not really, we've, we've let, I'll put it this way, we've let weirdos take over the prophetic ministry. You know what I'm talking about? And so then nobody wants to be a part of the prophetic. Even people who are truly prophetic will often, how many times you said this? Now, I'm no prophet, but they never even want to. It's as though they can say, well, I don't even want to claim any aspect of the prophetic because I think it has a negative stereotype associated with it, but here's what God's telling me. And so, but we want to exclude ourselves. And so as I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at Haggai, I'm looking at how needed the prophet is for any particular point in time of the church or of the kingdom of God or in the child of God. Now, when you think of the prophetic ministry, what do you think of? Just, what do you think of? 
You think of a person, you think, what, what do you think of? When I say the prophetic ministry, what comes to mind? Revelation, okay, anybody else? You think, I've never thought of the prophetic ministry. What? You think of Daniel, so certain books that are prophetic and they, are, they tell the future in many aspects. What else do you think of when you think of prophetic? Anybody? Right, that's good. And I think that, that is, that's at the core of what the prophetic is, is a person who preaches the word of God, declares the word of God in their time. A person who declares the word of God in their time. So when we're facing challenging times, how many of y'all think we're facing challenging times? I believe we need the rise of the prophetic. How many of y'all think that? But what that means is, is that oftentimes we have to change our stereotypes or our prejudices regarding the prophetic. Oh, they're doomsdayers, they're this, they're that. And seeing how we approach the prophetic and how we, we experience the prophetic in our life and, and saying, you know, God, what are you doing and, how, and how, do we, how do we declare this and what is our response to it? And, and Lord, <clears throat> where, where are you taking us from here to there? Because here's the reality. The day that we're living in today has not caught God off guard. But what is a little bit concerning to me is that it has caught the church off guard. Right? And what that tells me is that there's a bit of a gap between the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the prophetic. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying that's across the board. So there's a couple of things. If we troubleshoot the problem, then we've got to look at it. I believe that prophets have been prophesying. Those who have ears to hear, let him hear. What are some things that stop our hearing? Self, society. What else? What stops our hearing? from? Yeah, we just get so busy and we don't want to mess with that, right? How many of you are sometimes like me, it... Preparation is not nearly as pressing without some urgency behind it. You know what I mean? You, you, you feel as though you've got to have a reason to get things right sometimes. But you know what? I think God knows that as well. I think he knows how we are. And I think so much is what we call <clears throat> the wrath of God or the judgment of God is we are categorizing it to a, a God who's mad and fit-throwing and stomping around and, and throwing furniture. And, and we're just trying to stay clear of his wrath until his, his anger passes. Because that's how we view people of wrath. But <clears throat> I choose to believe, and I think the word bears it out, that his wrath is applied to anything that interferes with his love, with his plans, and with his purposes. And so I would, <clears throat> I would ask you, for your own life, to welcome God's, maybe not, we don't want to call it his wrath, but anything that he would want to remove from our lives that interfere with his love, with his purpose, 
and with his blessing in our life. And so as we look, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that's very much like it is. I, th- I, think that, I think that the wrath of God is for his enemies, right? Do we all agree with that? The wrath of God, the children of God are not appointed unto wrath. But that what will happen in our life as children of God is that Hebrews says that he disciplines his children, chastens. And then it says that discipline will not be comfortable or joyous, or what is the word used in Hebrews? Will not, what is it? Pleasant. It won't be pleasant in the moment, but that what it yields will be pleasant. So many times in our life, we get off track and there are things that the Lord has to discipline in our life in order to get us back on track. God disciplines with regard to his love because he wants to remove things that interfere with his love in our life. Now, as we look at Haggai, he comes along. He's a prophet who's placed in the word of God in a time after Israel has come out. The first wave has come out of Babylonian captivity. Psalm 126 was written as the children of Israel came out of Babylonian captivity. When, how's it start out? When we, we were like those who dream. I'm just quoting it now from, in paraphrase. Um, it says that they who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who goes forth with sowing bearing precious seed will doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves with him that was a psalm that was written as they came out of babylonian captivity now when they came out if you're going to read haggai you really need to read it with ezra ezra's in a different place of the bible it's not a minor prophet ezra it was a scribe but he's the one who tells the story about all the logistical aspects of how Israel came out of Babylonian captivity. There was a king who was set up in Babylon who was favorable toward the, um, the Israelites. Anybody know his name? What was that? I heard it. I thought I heard it. There was a king in Babylon. He was favorable to the Israelites. Donald Trump has been compared to him over and over and over again. What's his name? Cyrus. Cyrus. So we have Cyrus as the king. Cyrus was named by name by the prophet Isaiah 150 years before he was born. That's prophecy. I'm going to name a child that will be a ruler in a nation that doesn't even hardly exist right now. God named Cyrus, excuse me, by name... And then I'm thinking this. This is just my mind. If I'm an Israelite and I'm holding the Holy Script and I've got the prophecy of Isaiah, and what God has done is he's placed people in high positions in Babylon, hasn't he? Who's some people he placed in high positions? Name some. Mm -hmm. Hebrew children that were in high position. Daniel was one of them. Name me some more. Joseph was in Egypt. We're talking about Babylon, but yes, he's, yes. Who's in Babylon? Name some more. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm testing Bible knowledge right now, folks. If you wonder what I'm doing, I want to see how much you're reading the Word. Come on. Who else? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel. 
Nehemiah, Ezra. That's all right, but in that captivity time, in the, in the disbursement, the diaspora. Right, I'm just saying, who, who, who did he put in position in, in a foreign land? We got one more we're missing. Esther. Yeah, so God, my whole point is this, is that when God is moving in ways where everybody looks and thinks that God is out of control, God is very much what? In control and placing people in the right position. And he's got, he's just happened. It's just all coincidence, you know. It's just all coincidence that Nehemiah happens to be the wine tester for the king when he wants to build the walls. And Ezra is there. They all have ear of the king. Now, this is what I would do if I was Ezra. Now, I don't know what you would do if you were Ezra, but I'm living in Babylon, and I am a scribe. So what, am I, what, what is my responsibility as a scribe? I just write the scripture. And I'm meticulous about it. And I have other scribes that check my work. Who knows the word of God better than a scribe? Only God himself knows the word better than a scribe. So Ezra, and he comes, how many times do you think he wrote that Cyrus would be the one to deliver? When he's living there, when Cyrus was voted, when they were, the election was coming up, and the Democrats and Republicans were all fighting, and Cyrus was named, of course you know I'm being facetious here, and they were all voting, and, and Ezra knew who was going to win because God spoke it through the voice of prophecy, and so here he's got it written down, and he knows. Now, this is what I would do if I was Ezra. I don't know if he did this or not because I'm not, I wasn't there, and it's not set in the Word. But if I was Ezra, I'd say, can I get an appointment with the king? I need an appointment with the king. Why? Because I got some good news for I got some news. He was written about a long time ago that he was going to be a famous man, and I'd like to show him that ancient writing. This is what you'd do if you were Ezra? I would. Some of you are thinking, I don't believe he did that. You can tell it the way you want. I, be, I mean, this is what I would do if I was Ezra or whoever it was in that day. And I knock and I'd say, hey, king, look, this was ancient Hebrew writing. And look, our prophets, look, they named you. Really? Your God named me? What did he say I'd do? He said you'd do all this for the Israelites. Hmm. That sounds like a pretty good plan. I like it. I like that the God of the universe named me 150 years before I was born. I'm sort of a megalomaniac, you know, Ezra. I'm sort of a narcissist. And I like the idea of being named. See how that works? See, all of a sudden, we're not looking. Are we looking at Cyrus for our moral compass? Who's our moral compass? The Word of God, the God who wrote the Word. See, God moves people wherever He wants to move them. Don't get it twisted. His aim is not to make everything perfect here on earth right now. It is to raise up His church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is not maybe necessarily to lower your property tax. Does that make sense? I mean, it may not be, it may not be necessary 
for the United States to exist in the way that we need, the, we currently see the United States existing. I've thought about that many times. I thought every great civilization, Rome, everyone, all these great civilizations, China, all these, there was a generation on the ground that was living through the fall of that civilization. I've kind of felt like those people right now. Now, I'm not up here preaching direness here. I'm trying to tell you that God's got a voice in the land, and his voice is still going out, and his plan is still going forth. And I just want to promise you that you will be on the winning side if God is whose side you're on. Not some political party, not some movement, not some this or some that or some conspiracy theory, or maybe it's not conspiracy. Maybe it's just as true as it can be. But you got to make sure that your name is in the right spot that you're trying to push the right agenda. And as we look here, we see the Haggai now, that all come out. And Ezra, let me just, you should read Ezra, Ezra. It is amazing. That king did not just send him out and say, yeah, boys, you should go back and build the temple. That would be great. 50,000 of you can go. I'll release you from my kingdom to go and rebuild your kingdom because my name's written in a book from a long time ago. But you're going to need wood. I'm going to give you access to all the cedar that you need to build the house. We're going we're to send that. Wait a minute. Didn't we pillage all of your vessels of gold from when we destroyed your other temple? You know, Solomon's temple, the big pretty one. We raised that to the ground. Didn't we take all the gold in that temple? Yes, yes, sir, you did. I'd like to give that back. I'd like to give you all that back. I have to give you every bit of the stuff. Here's all the vessels. You can find that in Daniel. You know what? You know what Belshazzar was doing the night that the hand was writing on the wall? He was drinking out of those vessels. I love God. He's in there. He's praising the gods of all their lands, and they're using the vessels from the house of God to do it. They're, they've got, they're, in a, they're in a pagan feast, and they're filling up all the vessels that were used in worship in the house of God, and they're praising, they're mocking Jehovah God. They're mocking and celebrating. We've defeated Jehovah God. He was the mightiest God. Who cares about Egypt and what he did there? Look what we've done. Let him do something now. And all of a sudden a hand appears on a cave. Meanie, meanie, tinkle, tinkle. I'd be tinkling. Right? Daniel or whoever. What, 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 what does this mean? Hmm. Long live the king. It means you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And this very night, your kingdom is severed from you. And at that moment, raiders were coming in. You think God's not in control? You think God is not orchestrating everything that's going on? And he preserved those vessels through the Medes and the Persians. He preserved those vessels. They're in captivity for 70 years. He's preserved them. And Cyrus says, I'm going to give you all those vessels to take with you. He said, hey, I know what else you might need. I think you're going to need some armed guards to go with you. I mean, you're traveling through the desert with gold and money. You're traveling with Fort Knox. He said, I'm going to need to give you some armed guards. You know what Ezra said? Anybody know? Ezra said, nah. 
Ezra said this, I was ashamed. I was ashamed to ask for protection because it would look as though my God was not able to protect us. I like Ezra. So he took out. They're going this caravan. They're going through. They're bringing all this. They're, they're writing, we who sow in tears, we reaped in joy, and they that go forth bearing precious seed will come again, yea, doubtless, come again rejoicing, bringing their sheaves with them. And they're like, woohoo, God is faithful. We got our gold, we got our wood. Look what Cyrus did. Lord, you're so great. God, you're so great. We get to the land, and the first thing they encounter is opposition. Who would have thought that there would be opposition? I will tell you that the greatest challenge that the church faces in this day and age is every time you get in just a little bit, you hit that one little pebble of opposition and you fall out and you waller around and you fall down the hill and you splash around in the, in the, in the mud of, of self-pity and you whine. I mean, come on, am I talking to real people? Every time, God, I'm going to serve you this time. I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, God. I'm not going to church today. <laughs> Why? My eyeball hurts. Why? Because it keeps blinking. Is this true or not? I mean... I mean, it's time for us to, guess what? When you make a decision, right now, if you make a mental decision, you know the next thing that's going to happen after your mental decision to push in further? There's, yes, there's coming opposition. It's okay. He's defeated. All you got to do is just do it different than you did it the last 2,700 times. Just get up and go. What'd you do last time? I laid down and quit. Well, this time, we're going to get up and go. Well, then I got opposition again. What do I do after that? Get up and go. I promise you, if you will make up your mind today that nothing will keep you from the things of God, you can make that decision now, and it won't matter what comes. I didn't say it wouldn't come, because it will come, but nothing. You always attach yourself to the decision you made. I'm not stopping Resist the devil. I mean, if you got to do it in pain, do it in pain. I mean, I always hear Mike say this. Most of the things I've ever done in the kingdom of, for the kingdom of God in your life have been what? Done fear. Well, you're saying that's not true. The Bible says to fear not. He is. He's fearing not. He's doing the opposite. of. It's not saying fear is not present, right? You just do it in spite of fear, right? You just keep doing it in spite of fear. And that's what we have to do. So we have here Haggai. So y'all thought Haggai was just plopped down here in the middle of the Bible and had no reference to you. It is, so, it is so apropos to us today. So they get there, and somebody told them to quit building. A government order. Y'all are here, so y'all are safe. A government order said, don't build the house of God. A government order said, don't worship in church. Because singing spreads corona. My foot. <laughs> a government order said, and just fill in the blank, by mandate of the governor. Now, I'm not saying to go out and get thrown in jail. 
It may not be time for that yet. And it may be. That's right. That's right. And Paul got thrown in jail, and it was the guy he saw in Macedonia. I believe the one he saw calling from Macedonia was the jailer. And it took a, a riot to get him to jail. See, we're always trying to, you know, we think God's path is always going to be fun and games. It might be a little bit of problems along the way. So I'm saying here in Haggai, so what did they do? Well, the people came in shouting, you know, singing their, you know, the 126th Psalm, and they're, you know, they're doing their charismatic dance, and they're blowing shofars and the whole thing, and there's flags and things. And then they got there, and they started building the house of God, and they, and they got the foundation laid, and, and the government said, no, 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 no. These people are wanting to rebuild the house of God, and they're, they're insurrectionists. They are not complying with government agenda. They are not speaking the things that this government wants to, be, wants to hear. They are out of step with our government. Does that sound familiar? So God said, oh, dang. I didn't know that was going to happen. It's one little misstep. So 16 years passes. 16 years. Talk about procrastinators. 16 years. And the Lord's waiting for them to be obedient. And he's waiting for them to be obedient. And he's remi- I believe he's reminding. I always believe that the Lord always uses wooing first. I believe he always tries to bring people in with cords of kindness. I believe he always tries to bring people in with, look, look, and the encouragement and the blessing and the wooing to his graciousness. I believe he always uses that method first. Am I the only one? I think that's what he does. He, he tries to bring us out and to, to bring us into him by his great love. But then his love begins to take on another form. And here we have in Haggai. Haggai steps up. Thank God for the prophets, right? Nobody really likes them, but we all need them. Here's Haggai. In the second year of King Darius. So now we've even had a, see, we've got, we've got Darius. You remember Darius, don't you? That, you put him with Daniel, right? Daniel in the lion's den. He was a friend of, the, of, the, of Israel. He was a friend of Israel. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai. The prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, God's going to quote you, The time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while the house of God lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider... Your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. How many of you have ever sown much and harvested little? How many of you have ever run out of money before you ran out of month? That's what that means. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put them into a bag with holes. So what are the people doing at this point? They're rebuking the devil. I rebuke you, devil, off my harvest. I rebuke you, devil, off my bag of... I, fill up the hole. I rebuke you, devil, everywhere. I rebuke you, devil. I rebuke you... Right? Have you all ever done that? Sometimes we miss our target. 
Thus says the Lord, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and rebuild the house that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. Now we're going to get back to that. Now listen, look at verse 9. You looked for much and it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Who did this? Why were you rebuking the devil? Do you see what I see? See, the Lord is using this as an object lesson to get their priorities in line. And so you can rebuke the devil till kingdom comes. But until you get your priorities right, you're just, you're aiming at the wrong target. He said, I blew it away. Why? Because I'm sure that people are like, what? You blew it away, says the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins while each of you runs to his own house therefore the heavens above you have withheld dew and the earth has withheld its crops i called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain and on the new wine and on the oil and on the ground that brings forth on men on livestock and on the labor of your hands wow and then zerubbabel the son of sheltiel they all listened and they obeyed the voice of the lord their god and the words of Haggai the prophet, and the Lord their God sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Now right there, I'm going to back up, I'm going to stop there. The people feared the Lord. Matthew 28, I made a reference to it. Matthew 28, and, or excuse me, Matthew 10 and 28 says, Don't be afraid of what? The one who can destroy the body. But be afraid of the one who can destroy the body and soul in hell what's that what can somebody interpret what i just said that's it don't be afraid of man or the devil be afraid of god is that what that means so isn't it funny that there is an appropriate fear I've told y'all this before you can you can appropriate your fear right and it'll line up every other fear when you get more afraid of God than you are of man, you'll do what God says and stop listening to and be afraid of man. I told you the story of my mother when we, we had a tornado that was coming down on us, and there was a cellar across the road that was not ours. It was on an abandoned homestead, and so it wasn't cleaned out or anything. It wasn't kept up, and how many of you know if you go to a cellar that hasn't been cleaned or kept, it can be a scary endeavor? But I, at the time, was terrified of tornadoes, and I was only in seventh grade. So as soon as my dad told me that a tornado had blown away Midway, which was a little town just nearby, and you could see it, there was red all in the horizon, and it, it I mean, you could hear, it was just weird weather. I was like, I'm out of here. I don't care what you crazies are doing, but I'm going to the cellar. So I went over there, and I, I had a, I don't even know if I had a flashlight. I didn't have to have anything. It didn't matter. I'm getting in a cellar because a tornado's coming. Open up the door. I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of storms. So I go in there. I'm just sitting down in cellar I don't know what's in there with me but a tornado's not <laughs> here I am and so pretty soon I hear I mean I'm hearing rain and stuff you know go on because it's I mean this this is a tornado is coming I hear my dad banging on the door and he opens up the door and he gets in now he's and I said where's mom he said she's not gonna come to the cellar she's afraid of scorpions <laughs> well I'm not afraid I'm just sitting there I'm, just, I'm like I'm cool with the scorpions me and my dad are sitting there. I'm not calling the tornado. See how my fear is prioritizing things? I don't like the dark. I don't like dark shadows. I don't like scorpions. But see how my fear is all getting prioritized. Pretty soon, what do I hear? My mother. She's banging on the door. She wants in. 
See how fear began? She's not, I I thought you were afraid of scorpions. Nope, not anymore. Not in this moment. See, that's what that means. Matthew 10, 28, fear this, not this. When you get your fear right, your reverence of God right, other fears will begin to take a back seat. It's not saying that you won't feel intimidated. I just know where my pride, who I fear the most. And so they obeyed. They, they, they began to work because they feared the Lord. Not, uh, Lord, we reverence you. We understand your position in our life. And they began to work. But this is the scripture that I love. It's one of my foundational scriptures. The Lord gave me this message in Haggai probably when Laney was in first grade. I have been preaching this message since Laney was in first grade. Go up to the mountain. Bring back wood. And build my house. Now, we don't have a physical mountain that we have to go up to, and we don't have a King Cyrus who has provided us with cedars that we can cut and we can build the house. We don't have these things. Only one bit of wood is needed to build the house of God, and it's already been provided not by King Cyrus, but by King Jesus. And that was the cross. So, what we have, but we go, but we have. We all have a mandate. It's not the preacher mandate. It's not his wife's mandate. It's not the deacon mandate or some other prophetic person's mandate. Every single person has to go up to the mountain. What is the mountain? His presence. Jacob said something the other day. I loved it. He said, he said I think most of us, Moses is standing in the way of our mountain. We want to hear from Moses. You just tell me. Moses, would you just tell me what God says? I don't actually want to interface with him myself. I would dare for each and every one of us to put a priority on getting into the presence of God. If you want to prepare for the days ahead, you have to go up to the mountain. If you want to prefer for what's coming next in the world. I don't know what it'll be. Do I have some prophetic insight? No, but I tend to think it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. That's just my, that's my tendency. Maybe I'm a pessimist. I've never been classically a pessimist. I've been a, a ridiculous optimist my whole life. What do I mean by ridiculous optimist? I just believe it'll be better even when I don't have any good concrete reason to believe. But I do know this that in the days that are ahead, what you need to do is to know how to get a hold of God. You need to know that. We need to know how to pray. You know what the essence of praying is? The essence of praying. You know what it is? Praying. We teach a lot on prayer. We theolot, the, uh, what's the word? Theolot? Yeah, something like that. We, I was going to say theory. What's the word Theory theorize thank you golly we theorize a lot about prayer we you know philosophize says a lot about prayer we have all these I can't even come up with the words we have all these words we have all these things we do with regard to pray but you know what we never get around to doing (laughs) I mean we can we can talk about prayer and teach about prayer and go amen we need to pray Somebody's going to pray, I'm sure. I'm hungry. 
Wednesday nights we pray, but that won't, eat. I mean, if that's, I mean, really, come on, Mike. That's a good prayer. That's coming together in prayer. But we're fixing to get some more prayer, aren't we? We're going we're gonna to, fixing to, we're fixing to ratchet up prayer. September's going to be the month of prayer. Yes. Yes. Yep. He did. He said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? I mean, and he had to follow that man for a long time before that mantle ever fell on him. Huh. I wonder how many mantles have fallen from other prophets that have gone by. The prophetic ministry in the church has fallen to the earth, and there was nobody there to be a student of the prophet. Mantles fell. Do y'all think that too? Maybe some mantles fell for some prophets. And there was nobody who actually would take the time to follow the prophet. And what did, what did Elisha do for Elijah? Washed his hands. He, wa- he poured water on his hands while he washed them. Gosh. Yeah, he was right there with him. And I'm telling you, Elijah wasn't an easy dude to follow. I know that because whenever he killed all the prophets of Baal after the Carmel example, when he did that... He got all down in the dumps. And if you just think about this logically, 850 people were brutally slain. How many of you think that would be stressful to you? You were personally involved in slaying 850 people with a sword. How many of you think that would be brutal? How many of you think that would have a little PTSD impact on your psyche? I think all of us. It impacted him, didn't it? So then he's under the juniper tree, and he's like, he, you know, he's just done all this, and here he is, and he wants to die, and he's, he's gotten in a problem here. And you know what, he, if you read in the scripture there, you know he told his servant, he had a servant with him at that time. We don't know his name. He's unnamed. But he had a servant. That servant would have been his, see, that would have been his student, the person, he was the, he was the apprentice, and that was the master. You know what he told his servant? He said, stay here. You know what the servant did? Cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm staying. The servant stayed. When, when Elijah said, stay here, you know what the servant did? He stayed. Because Elijah was hard to follow. How many times did Elijah tell Elisha to stay here? Over and over and over and over. And you know what he kept doing? Mm-mm. I'm going with you. Yeah, I mean, we see, we'd get, we see a least little bit of opposition and, and you know, circumstances stay. And what do you do? You stay. What do I do? I want to stay. Do y'all, are y'all hearing me? See, we've got to get to the place where we are willing to trek up the mountain of prayer and spend time in the presence of God because then and only then will we have any of the necessary material if you will, to build the house of God. The world does not need what you have if you do not have the treasure in the earthen vessel. The world will be amazed when you begin to pour out better wine than they've ever tasted. And it'll be in the end of the hour. At the end of the wedding, what? We should have the worst wine by now. Yeah, I mean, I'm moving all over the scripture now. Now I'm at the wedding of Cana with Christ. So 
They were all amazed. When they pulled out the better wine, where was the better wine? What time was it in the timetable? Let's get a little bit prophetic here. It was at the end. What does the church have to expect in the, this end of the age? Better wine. But where's it going to come from? It's going to come from earthen vessels. Who, who are, who's the earthen vessels? Point you. He's going to use you. But it's going to take a touch from Jesus. It's going to take a touch from Jesus. I can tell you someone who's been in the presence of God. Jesus has touched their life. Their wine is better than the worldly wine. They're not gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Whoa, gloom, despair, agony on me. How many of y'all, you live that way from time to time? That will be as a result of spending time in the world. That's the mountains of the world. It just is. In these last days, we're going to have to go up to the wood. We're going to have to go up to the mountain. We're going to have to bring back wood, and we're going to have to build the house. And it says, "And I will take." The Lord says, "I will take pleasure in it, and will be glorified." What we need in this day is the glory of the Lord. I want the glory of God to show so to so show up in this house that you can't find a place low enough to lay. So What do you mean by that, Stacy? Being still before the Lord. What 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 is the practical application of that? It's just just doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And you got to know. And you got to know what it is that you're doing. But the whole point is, is where do we get the information? By getting in his presence. That we are, what, I have it in my notes here. Somebody can look it up for me. Um, hold up. First Corinthians 3.11. Mm, maybe that's right. It may not be right, y'all. It could be. Or it could be wrong. Oh, Second Corinthians 3.18. I bet that's it. Yeah, that's it. 2 Corinthians 3.18. This will be a familiar scripture probably to most people. 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is my discipleship program in my life and my discipleship program to you. It's very simple. It is so easy. It's one step, and that's it. We can all draw close to him with the veil removed from our faces and no and with no veil we all become like mirrors 
who brightly reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus. We are being transfigured into his very image as we move from one brighter level of glory to another, and this glorious transfiguration comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We with all, here's your King James Version, we all with unveiled faces beholding in a glass, as it were, the glory of God, are being changed into that same glory from glory to glory. Now tell me how much diminishing of the glory is specified there in that Corinthians verse. There's no diminishing of glory. So how much glory we have is a direct result of how much time we spend behind the veil. Is that what he just said? Now, I know I'm just like you and you're just like... The flesh. It's the flesh. That's what it says there in, in Corinthians. It, it, it's not even, Paul's not even being that mysterious about it. He said the veil in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, it was, a, it was an actual woven tapestry, but it symbolized something. What did it symbolize? Our flesh, our sinful flesh. Because through Christ's sacrifice, see the, the wood, the cross, what we go up to the mountain and bring down, it's already taken care of. It is finished. You don't have to go find you a cross and die on it. It's already done. Everything's done. But the cross doesn't have a period behind it. The cross goes on to the tomb, and now there's a co-resurrected life. Congratulations. You should be living a co-resurrected life. But guess what? That would be great. The cross, your sins forgiven, a co-resurrected life, whoa, that is glorious beyond comprehension, but it doesn't even stop there, does it? There is the glorification, the co-glorification of Christ. He is seated in heavenly places, and where are you, according to Ephesians? You're right there with him. And what does Hebrews say you can do? You need help in time of trouble? Oh, oh, easy, easy, easy. I got the answer to that. You need help in time of trouble? You can come boldly before the throne of grace and receive help in time of need. This is something the priest could only do once a year, and with the blood of a goat on the day of atonement, one time a year, one time a year. But oh, friends, we have a better prominent, better promises and a better covenant that you can literally lay on your face before God day in and day out and be changed from glory to glory to glory to glory with ever increasing glory I think the new king no the NIV says and you don't have to diminish at all why is the church in a place of such crippled impotence where we argue over doctrine and we have no resurrection power in our life and we we fiddle around with sin and we're overtaken by every plague of darkness because we don't know God we need his presence I want you to out preach me I want it you need his presence why do you care what people think about you you need his presence. Every I've told people this for years. They've told me, oh, I struggle with this sin and that sin and this other sin, and I got this and that and other and, and my anxiety and my depression and my cancer and my, my ingrown toenail and my hair and my this and my that, and I got this and that and the other and my PTSD and my, you know, ARD and my AARP and my, I don't know. You got all this stuff, and I'm always like... Dang, 
Dang. I want to say, well, I've told people this years, if you will just get in his presence. I mean, if you would just find that place where you lay in his presence to the point to where you feel like nothing, you bawl and squall and you feel like the fire of God has come over you and you say, God, I'm not leaving here until you change me. I don't want you to change anybody. Change me. I don't want to change my husband. I don't want you to change my boss. I don't want you to change my neighbor. I don't want you to change. God, just change me. Change me. Change me. Change me. And just stay right there. And you know what? You'll get up and you'll be like, man, I don't know what you did, but it's good. And you'll find there's a change. There's been a degree of glory added to your life. I promise you. And then you'll go, huh, that's cool. And the next thing you know, you'll go into his presence again, and there'll be a degree of glory added to your life. And there'll be a lesser degree of you than there was before. And there'll be a degree of glory added, and there'll be a lesser degree. And you'll keep doing this until you have been so transformed that you don't even recognize yourself anymore. Where you used to be afraid to do stuff, you're not afraid anymore. Where you used to be intimidated, and you used to not have words, and you used to not have this, you're not anymore because you learned how to get in his presence. That's what I'm talking about when I say go up to the mountain. God teach us to pray now I lay me down to sleep I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should die before I wake I pray the Lord my soul to take amen gosh Andrea you're such a prayer warrior bless the folk and bless the kin back your ears and dive in amen I mean, it's just, it's just coming out of me. My grand, I never knew my, my great-grandfather, and I'm closing with this. Grandpa Hamilton. Apparently, my Grandpa Hamilton was a, um, an alcoholic. And back in the days of, this has been in the turn of the century. So, it would have been the, you know, the Azusa Street Revival and those revivals that were sweeping across, you know, tent revival. Evangelists would come in, they would set up tents, and God would just pour out his spirit. Well, my grandpa Hamilton was the fruit of that move of God. He was an alcoholic, and he had several kids already, but my grandmother wasn't born yet, because there's 12 kids. It takes a while to get those all on the planet. And so um, he, was, he was the guy in town, the town drunk, who would, you know, drink all night and, you know, lay out in the street and get up in the morning and go home with a hangover. And so uh, a tent evangelist came by, and they set up the tent in the town square, and my, my grandpa was out drunk, and he heard the message and the power of God just sobered him up and delivered him from alcohol, and he got saved. And he became a preacher. And he actually became, he was credentialed in the church of God. And so he was a church of God evangelist. And my grandpa Hamilton, when he prayed, he was known for prayer. His, my my grandmother, Hamilton, she had to constantly replace the knees in his pants and reinforce them because they were sharecroppers. And so they, they always moved around, and all my granny and all her 12 brothers and sisters and all them, they all picked cotton. And they would, you know, sharecrop, and you would get a portion of that. And he would travel around, and he was also, it never meant anything to me until now. My grandmother told me these stories, said that during the flu, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, my grandpa, he did not believe in doctors. He, I mean, he would have told you it was sinful to go to a doctor, lack of faith. I don't say that, but that's, you know, in that day, that's what they said. And um, 
he and my grandmother were the only two people who would go and they would care for people who had the Spanish flu because it was, it was deadly. And they would go into the houses and they would bring them food and they would, you know, they would help their fever and bathe their head and pray for them and, and, and move out. And my granny told me, see, I'm a kid hearing this, but I have no reference to it. I'm like, okay, that's good. She said they would come home and she said none of us ever, as she would say, took the flu. None of us ever caught flu. None of us ever, none of the kids ever died or got sick because we believed that God would protect us. And so, and that, I heard that and I thought, wow, that's cool. Now it has more emphasis to me in this day and age. And so when he got, he got saved, he would go out and he would pray. And my dad was little, but they would tell me stories. They said that he would go out and he would, he would find a place to pray in the woods. And he didn't just pray. He would pray out loud. If the wind would carry it back to the house, they would hear him praying in tongues and hear his voice carrying back in the, you know, Grandpa Hamilton's praying. He prayed over the meal. I mean, you didn't eat for a little while. Bedtime prayers, you got started early. You weren't going to bed for a while. And he would pray, and he would pray for generations. He would pray for all the kids he knew, and he would pray for, he would say, he would say I pray for Jack's kids, whatever they, and that's me. See, when his prayers are still a part of my life, his prayer, I'm still the fruit of his prayers. Someone who knows how to pray and to pray well. And I fear in the house of God we've lost the art of that kind of praying. Really getting in and praying. I mean, I know on Wednesday nights and Michael say, y'all lift up your voice. It's important. You know, a lot of people wear these, wear these quiet prayers. I mean, it's important that you learn how to get comfortable hearing yourself pray. You know what I mean? Praying and hearing yourself pray. That was one of the most powerful things for me when I came into the Pentecostal church was how I heard people pray. And I learned to pray by listening to people pray. I did. I didn't learn that in the Baptist church. I learned it in an Assembly of God church. I learned it when I would go to women's prayer meeting and I would hear women who were saved and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they knew how to touch God. And they prayed. And I, and I wonder if we've lost that art of praying, of really praying. And, I, and all of your preparation for the future, if you don't put prayer in your pantry, I don't care how many bullets and beans you have, if you have not learned to pray, you will not be prepared. Prayer is the key for a powerful church. Prayer is the key for a passionate church. If you're not passionate about prayer, don't worry. Pray and the passion will come. Press in and pray. We are entering into what I believe are dark days. Pray. But these will be the best. The dark, guys, is just going to be a backdrop for the light. And I know it's a day for us to learn how to pray and to pray well and to pursue beyond our interests, beyond our comfort. Guys, it's time to pursue beyond your little 
your pleasant schedule. It's time to pray and to pray well if we're going to be the people God has called us to be. China has been praying for the United States for years. You know what their prayer has been? God send them persecution. They're too weak. Thanks, China. Now, why they did that? Because they know that if we're so we're so comfortable and so lackadaisical, if we don't have a need, we never will reach out to God. And I believe that what we need, I don't know who will win the election. And you know what? I don't really care. I'm going to do my part, and I'm going to vote four or five times. <laughs> my grandmother passed away. I'm voting for her. This is all recorded. I'm just kidding, y'all. Just kidding. I'm voting once. It's all I can vote. I'm going to do my part there, right? But there's no guarantees, is there? The only guarantee we have is God who is on the throne. And he's not just on the throne, but he's in my life. And no weapon formed against me will prosper. And every tongue that rises against me in judgment, thou wilt condemn. And if I've got to go at a martyr's death, I want to be like Stephen. That man was prayed up. When you're being stoned to death, you see, I see the heavens open and the Son of God sitting on the throne. And his last words on earth was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That man had been to the mountain he had brought back some wood and he had built the house we've got to be people who know God in these last days this is time if you're ever going to get in this is the time to get in if you're ever going to store up this is the time to store up because I believe that the latter house shall be better than the former that's what the word of God says right there in Haggai and I believe that the wine at the end of the marriage is going to be better than the wine from the beginning we're dismissed. Thank you. Where'd y'all go? Was that good?